Welcome back to another episode of Electric People. It's Ty Williams, and we have Mikey Taylor on the podcast today. Uh, Mikey Taylor was a former professional skateboarder who now is the founder and president of a real estate and storage unit investment fund called Commune. We had an awesome conversation where we talked through his life in skateboarding and how it prepared him uniquely for what he's doing now. Even though those paths seem maybe like they don't meet up in the middle, Mikey's did. And surprise, surprise, it's a lot like ours, especially if you're in the direct sales space. So um, he also talked about some of his other ventures that he did. He started a brewery called St. Archer's Brewery out of San Diego. He has over 1.25 million social media followers. He's in, he's the city councilman in the city of Thousand Oaks, father of four, and has an awesome view on life, investing, development. Um, one of the things I especially love is Mikey is really big on education. So he doesn't just run this fund. He also... Um, it's a big focus for him to educate other people on the principles of finance and financial independence. So check out his social media where he has a lot of really cool videos that are easy to, to digest, but deeply profound. So with that, let's get to it. Enjoy this episode with Mikey Taylor. The street is where we create. We call it suburbanpreneurship. Mixing big company resources with an entrepreneurial spirit. This is Electric People. Thanks for making the drive down, man. I I appreciate it. How long did it take you? Uh, about an hour and a half. You were up in Thousand Oaks? Thousand Oaks, yeah. But we were just talking about the Teslas. I hit the button and just it roll. takes me. Yeah. Dude, I love Thousand Oaks. So when we moved here, I was living in Utah before and I was working for um, our former sister company. So we did home automation. We we're out of Utah. And um, my wife is from Utah, like North Salt Lake. I'm from Seattle. And when we were talking about moving here, I didn't know Ventura County like personally, right. you know? And she was like, where do you want to, where would we live? And I was like, well, it's like North LA. She was like, are you sure? You know, we had three kids. One of our kids was like weeks old. She's like, I don't know if I want to raise a family in LA. And I was like, well, let me go check it out. And I came out and I like, I remember I rolled through, we were living in Newberry park, but I like rolled over that hill down into Camarillo. And I was like, this is not like the LA that you think about, man. There's like lemon farms and there's like trails and farms and avocados. And I was like, you just got to get out here. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's nothing like LA. Yeah. It's, it's slow and suburbs and clean yeah. and it's safe. <laughs> family, family yeah. oriented, like yeah. somewhat conservative. Like yep. you don't live in California. You think all of California is like downtown LA and San Francisco with the like hustle and bustle and the politics and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, where would your kids go to school? And you get here and you're like, Oh, there's no problem. Bring them out. Yep. It's perfect. Yep. It's That's amazing. Right. That's right. Um, so we were chatting most recently at the Ryan Sheckler golf tournament that we've both been playing in for a couple of years. How'd you play, by the way? We ended up winning the tournament. You did? Yeah. Did you not know that? I ended up taking off before the winning ceremony because I knew we did not win okay, the tournament. Okay. So dude, check this out. So we're playing, when I got invited, I, was, I didn't think I was going to go. I, I had kind of a conflicting schedule. And then Ryan reached out to me personally. He's like, dude, can you make the tournament? And I was like, Okay, let me see what I could do. Mm -hmm. I saw a buddy of mine the next day and I thought in my head, you know what? I'm going to put it on him. Like if he says he'll come with me, I'm in. If he doesn't, I'm not going to go. I was like, Jeff, you want to play in this golf tournament next Monday? And he goes, let's do it. You're like, okay. I'm like, okay. So I text Ryan. I'm like, hey, I'm in with one of my buddies, which is suicide for a golf tournament, right? Yeah. Like a golf tournament, if you want any chance, you put together a good foursome. 
So I'm going just Jeff and I, and we're going to get randomly paired with two. Oh, you had two randoms. Two randoms. And so we get there, and as we're driving, I tell my friend Jeff, I was like, hey, dude, probably no expectations on winning. Like, let's just go and have fun. Yeah. He's like, okay, cool. Yeah. So we meet one of our partners, players, and I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? Like, do you play often? And he goes, no. I'm like, okay. He goes, I've only played five times. I'm like, ever? <laughs> ever. I'm like, okay, great. He goes, He's a ringer, dude. There's no way. No, bro. He was not. But he was the biggest legend. His like, his vibe was perfect. Okay. He's like, but my my friend, he plays. Mm. And his friend was probably like a, I don't know, seven handicap. Okay. So he, was, he, was, he was a good yeah. player. What do you think you are? Uh, I'm about a 12 right now. Okay. Uh, the See, I'm probably like a true 22. You know, okay. like I bring the speaker, I buy the snacks. Okay. I'm not slow. I'm not an idiot. Right. That's my vibe. So I'm like, you know, I want to win. And okay. You know, All right. This is about as good as I can get with uh, the time I have available. Uh-huh. So we end up playing and we were playing decent, but like, I didn't think we had a chance to win. So we finish, we, we bring our bags to the car. We go up kind of, Hey, let's have a drink. So we have a drink. And all of a sudden they announce that they do a shotgun or like a sun death style where they pick the three top teams and then they go off and do an alternate shot till somebody wins. Oh, so you're like getting into the qualifier. It's not based on the score at the end. Right. Usually at a golf tournament, whoever has the low score wins, Mm, right? This, they take basically top three and then they go, you know, duel it out until somebody wins. And so they call our names and I'm looking at everyone. I'm like, holy crap, we're in this. So we run back to get our bags. We walk up and we're basically playing against two teams that were way better than us. Yeah. And we just, we pulled it together. We ended up winning like the game winning shot. Was Ryan's team pissed? Cause you know, it's like a whole thing with like Astefin and Ryan and like they, like their thing is they win. And we've always been suspicious of it cause it's their tournament. They win every year. Come on. So they weren't even in the the shotgun or not the shotgun, the uh, uh, playoff. But one of the teams that was, that we were playing against, one of the guys is like on tour now. He's Mm. like, a pro. I think I heard that. Yeah. And so like, uh, that was nice. Like beat him. That was yeah. cool. <laughs> you know? Dude, I, that's what happened. That's what having holds Ryan's daughter, like uh, 10 months. Right. That's that. Yeah. That's that. You yeah. shouldn't be, you shouldn't be that good at golf if you have a 10 month old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So we got, you know, golf bag, new driver, a whole bunch of stuff. Hey, good for you, man. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. The, on that tournament, because it's a little more wild and you like, it's just kind of whatever. I usually bring people that I'm like, Hey, this is gonna be really fun. Right. We're not winning. Right. But it's gonna be a good time. Right. You know, and we, we like, uh, we like to like, we sponsor a hole and do that kind of stuff. Um, the Shecklers, I, I live on their street. Like that oh, they yeah. grew up on. Right. And so my kid, Shane like teaches my kids and stuff. And I'll tell you what, you have four kids. So you're, this is going to relate. Right. The reason that I've decided, like the reason that we became friends or whatever is because my son, when he first, my oldest, who's 13, when we first started going there, um, we dropped him off and, uh, I got a text from Shane, like, Hey, my son's name's Rocco. He's like, Rocco took a pretty bad crash. And if Shane Sheckler's texting you saying he took a bad crash, like it's probably like pretty bad, right. you know? Um, you skated at their park here? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, we get there and his he had a concussion, like his bell was rung pretty bad. And it's like in a little kid, a concussion's kind of scary because right. they, they don't act like themselves and all that kind of stuff. And so we took him home and whatever, we got it handled. And then Shane came by like the next day and he'd gone to the shop and uh, he brought him like this new helmet and all these pads. And he's like, I'm just checking on your son to see how he's doing. Right. And it's like, dude, that's a small thing. But when someone's nice to your kids, it's like, dude, I'm in like whatever you need. Like I, 
I've got you. Like the, it was like, it was the, like such like a tender and cool thing right. that now, I mean, now he's, he started going there when he was super tiny. Now, he, you know, he's a big kid that charges around and that's so cool. we keep filtering our other kids through there. So it's like, you're yep. cool to one, you get the whole army. Yeah. You know what yep. I mean? You got all six of them. That's awesome. That's yeah, cool it's good times. Yeah. Um, so here's something that you might not know. I actually, um, I'm a fan of your work. So, and maybe in a different way, I, I see a lot of, um, I see a lot of what you do and what our guys do, right? So we run, um, we call it the street. So it's a direct sales channel. So um, our, we have 40 to 50 sales teams all across the country. And the people that run these teams, we have a, a phrase that we've coined called suburbanpreneurship. So suburbanpreneurship is similar to entrepreneurship, but with entrepreneurship, you have to take extreme risk, right? right? We were talking about this before we started recording. So the way that our company does it, it's actually pretty cool for a very unique set of individuals. Like you and your friends would thrive in this environment. So the way we define it is um, combining like big company resources with entrepreneurial spirit to create business in the street, right? So um, it's basically where you're running a business that's funded by somebody else. So if you signed up to be a sales leader with us, we would give you um, a, like a warehouse, like a, like a space. We would stand that up. You'd have an installed team and the company would, you know, you'd have payroll, all those things kind of handled for you. And then you would run the sales team and drive sales. So it's like someone else will handle all the part about the business that a lot of us aren't great at, which mm -hmm. is, the permitting and the structures and the logistics and the design ramifications and all those kinds of things. Right. And we get to do the things that we're good at, which is community and sales teams and driving volume. So it's like, and you know, the guys can earn equity in the company by their performance. So they earn high commission and equity, which is rare for employees. We'll call them. Right. They get paid as 1099 employees and everything like that. And so a lot of times what they'll do is they'll create their own identity with their team. Right. Um, so like if you go to the thousand Oaks team versus going to the team in New Jersey, it, it it's as different as going to a 49ers game and a Raiders game. Like they're just totally different designs, feel fans, all that kind of stuff. And I actually didn't know, um, before like researching you that, um, St. Archer's was your thing, but it had really good design. Right. So I do a lot of design work and stuff like that. So, you know, it's a brewing company. You started in what, 2012? We officially launched in 12. In 12. And I don't, I don't remember where I saw it, but I'm always keeping little lookbooks of things that have like good design because I design a lot of teams, things and branding and stuff like that. And I have literal screenshots from some time, like when I came to, and I came to Thousand Oaks in 2013. So it must've been relatively close. And I don't yeah. know you know, I worked like your neighborhood randomly. We'll get to that. But, and maybe that's where I saw it, but I was like, the font is clean. The design and the arrow, it's all like the colors were like, kind of like a faded black and gold. It was like really cool looking. And then when you started doing commune, I was like, dude, the design on this is so sick. Like, and then I realized, oh, it's the same thing. Yeah. And then you also had kind of your own aesthetic at DC and stuff like that. So maybe off topic, but what, what element does design and how you present yourself how do you think about that as it shows up in your in your ventures? Well, I've got to kind of tell a backstory so it makes sense. My first career was in the I was a pro skateboarder. And in skateboarding, most of the product is the same, right? Like there's only really two wood manufacturers. All the shoes are made in China. And there's nothing that really makes an Adidas shoe better than a Nike shoe or a girl skateboard better than a okay. chocolate or not a chocolate, maybe zero, right? 
But the marketing and the experience that you're able to showcase will convince a kid that one is better than the other, mm -hmm. right? Like my friends and I, when we were young, we would always argue over what skateboard's better than the other. They were the same skateboard. We just had, they had different graphics yeah, on them. printed in the same factory and everything, right? Yep. Yeah. And so growing up in that industry, we put a hyper focus on feel and look and aesthetic. And we almost are forced to become master marketers in a sense, but more on the brand side of marketing, less on the sales side. And so I just always felt like that was really important. I thought like, you know, as we move forward to, to St. Archer, when you're competing for the product, like whoever can create the best product, it's very hard to be the best forever. And it's really hard to create any type of separation if the product is the only thing that is your standalone. But I feel like building a brand, that's actually a way for you to create your own thing that is very different from everyone else. And I actually think it's harder to replicate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I've just always kind of put a uh, maybe more of a focus on that side than most do. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, let's go into that. So your story, um, you know, I'm, I'm imagining you grew up skateboarding, but you went pro at age 19. Right. Right. So it's funny, like being a kid that came up in skating and snowboarding and things like that, like your ambition is always, oh, I want to be a pro. You see him in the video parts. You're like, that life looks amazing. Um, but you never understand the economics of it as a kid. Right. Right. And you don't understand. You're kind of like, uh, you know, the Nitro Circus guys call it being a disposable hero. Right. Like you're literally like sacrificing your limbs for that. Talk about maybe um, coming up in skateboarding and the economics of it and then how you turned that into your eventual like wealth creation machine. Right. So the interesting part is I never wanted to be a pro. Like that was never a desire of mine. Hmm. What my desire was, I didn't want to stop skateboarding. And, you know, when I got to 17, 18, got to the point where I was getting close to graduating high school, I didn't see another alternative to allow me to skate longer without becoming pro. I thought that was the only way I could do it. And so- More of a logistic thing. It was more of a logistic thing because one, I, I, I never wanted, I never cared for people knowing who I was when I was skating. Uh, I loved the craft so much that it was just a, okay, here's my shot to keep doing it. I had no idea how much a pro skateboarder could make. I, I knew it wasn't that much because the pros that I watched weren't driving nice cars, right? They were back driving then. back then. Yeah. Everybody was driving like Honda Civics yeah. and stuff like that. And so I ended up getting sponsored. I ended up starting, I think I was making like $800 a month, but I was able to keep skating. So I was like, okay, this is like cool for this moment. And then I, my original goal is that I was gonna do it for maybe three years. And and on top of that, I had the opportunity to start traveling. Like the first year I turned pro, I went to, gosh, Germany, I went to France, I went to Italy, I went to Spain. Like I got to see the world, which was great. For contests and stuff or video parts? All or? video parts. So it was like yeah. just going there to film movies. That's actually probably even better. It was like, so you don't have great. the pressure and the stress of the, like having to do well and things like yeah, that. You get you to just, see the city, right? Yeah. Like you get connected with the local skaters. They take you to like the actual spots. You yeah. get to be kind of immersed in the culture. It was awesome. And then gosh, two years into it, uh, skaters all of a sudden started making money. Like I went from making 800 bucks a month to maybe I was making like six grand a month. And for a 21 year old who's like skateboarding every day, I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. But I knew that it didn't, ha I didn't have a long window of making money. So my fear of what happened after was a pretty big fear in my life. And so from a young age, I just started basically saving everything I was making and then getting it invested. It was like my whole model was live like I'm broke and then put that money to work. That was it. 
you were wired for that or you got advice for that or I got advice actually my, so to kind of backtrack now, uh, when I told my parents I wasn't going to go to college yeah. and I was going to go skate for a little bit, they yeah. panicked. Like they were not okay with it. Did you grow up in Newberry Park or in Thousand Oaks? Or? I grew up in I grew up in a city called Oak Park. Okay, yeah. And then moved to Newberry Park where we met uh, when I was fifteen. Okay. And so my parents were like trying to get some type of comfort in me doing this. And so like my mom and dad basically threw out like you need to have like a financial advisor help you. I was like, okay. At 19? At 19, which made no sense. With 800 like, bucks a month. <laughs> exactly. But I think my mom was just like so freaked out. She oh, was just yeah. like, get somebody to help you. Well, and back then again, like I, I think, you know, a lot of people that listen to this, you're born in 81? 82. Okay, I'm 82 as well. So uh, there wasn't really pro skaters, right? I mean, there was, there was guys that had been doing it for a while that were still doing it, but it wasn't like a job. Right. Like it wasn't like a... That wasn't, there was no one you could really model a lifestyle after or a career after financially, at least. No, it was just, there were a handful of guys that got to act like kids longer than the rest of us. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, my mom connects me with this guy. I'm, I'm not making enough for somebody to help me for whatever reason. He took me under his wing. Mm. He's like, I'm going to make you a client, but I'm actually going to spend time with you, like teaching you how this works. And he spent a lot of time with me, like looking, teaching me how to look at the industry. And so uh, 19 years old, we basically, no, 19, I wasn't making enough. It, this was probably around 20. And I started living off basically a fraction of what I was making, which wasn't that much. And we were putting money in retirement accounts and stocks and it was very conventional, but he helped me create the discipline of only spend this and put everything else towards your future. And that you, you took to that philosophy. You weren't trying to live a rock star life. And I remember like at that time, I remember Bucky Lassick, there was this episode of Cribs. You remember this? And he had like a new M3. Yep. And as it when I, I probably would have been like 17 or something at the time. And like the M3, that was, I would never need a car nicer than that. And right. so, but you took to it. You thought, okay, I'll do this. You didn't have an instinct to like spend that 6K a month. No, I, I, I took to it and I went extreme with it. Mm. So like there was one moment that I always remember. I was driving a 92 Civic hatchback, right? No power steering, no, uh, you know, I, was, uh, I had to roll up the window. That's the manually. DX. That's yeah. the DX model. Right. It was the <laughs> DX model, but I bought it in cash. I had no car payment. Right. Okay. And there was one day I was going skating and I'm, I was meeting a bunch of friends at this spot they were going to skate at. And my friend Paul rolls up in like a new G wagon. My friend Evan rolls up in like an E-class Mercedes. Right. And I pull up in my little Honda Civic. And they look at me and like, bro, you need to stop acting so poor. Yeah. I was like, well, what are you guys talking about? They're like, seriously, like we know how much you're making. Like, why are you doing this? And I remember like having this like moment where I was like, you know what, should I tell them that like they're spending too much and like, you know, they should think about the future or should I just like ignore it? And whatever, I was young, I just ignored it. I'm like, yeah. I'm just gonna do my thing. And so for a long time, all my friends just thought I was like cheap, like this cheap And I think dude. it eventually worked out for P-Rod, right? We're okay now. P-Rod's incredibly smart. He's doing all right. <laughs> P-Rod is incredibly smart. Yeah, he's really smart. So, but that was just the path I took. And, and for me, I think it was one, the example I saw in my parents, my parents weren't big spenders. Like my dad didn't make an astronomical amount of money, but he managed the money he had very well. Mm -hmm. And so what it felt like was we were always in maybe the neighborhood with people that made more than we did, but we were in the neighborhood, you know? And so it was probably a mix of like an example from them and then a fear of life after skating kind of was the perfect combo that I needed to, you know, 
hold my expenses where they were as I made more money over the next decade. What a valuable thing that, um, that you had someone that took you under, this is, is that Randall? That's Randy. Randy. Yeah. Sorry. Randall is his dad actually. Oh geez. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, just in doing some research, like I thought that was really interesting. One, um, that you had that, like my, so my dad was an executive banker when I was growing up, he wasn't an executive banker. He was kind of working his way up that, right. that ladder. And so I always had pretty sound financial advice given to me. Like I just kind of understood how things kind of worked, mm. but if you don't have somebody like Randy, someone like my dad, something like that, like, where do you get it? Because when we were younger, no. you know, the school doesn't teach it. Mm-hmm. And your, uh, you know, even like the stuff you do, which is educational, like quick hits and stuff on your social media that you would have to come across like a rich dad, poor dad or something. And somebody would have to give it to you. And then you'd have to be at least conscious enough to read it. Right. So it's actually pretty rare. And, and at the age that you got that advice to be 20 rather than like even 30, right. where you can get some compounding and some like working for you, like, right pretty lucky that one, it came your way and two, that you listened. I was super lucky. Like I, I say this all the time, like Randy, like single-handedly changed the trajectory of my future. Like single-handedly did that. Uh, that was huge for me. The The second thing that's interesting is like, I grew up in a generation where, and we believe this, that if you didn't go to college, you couldn't really do anything. You were never going to make money. You're just going to, gonna, you know, scrape to get by. And I remember like thinking that all my friends that were going to college were learning about how to make money and I wasn't learning that. So I felt like in some way, like Randy was my like, okay, I'll just learn from you because I skipped college. You're probably better to look because I went to college and I didn't learn it there. Well, you that's know what, what I mean? was about, but I didn't know yeah. any better. Right. Then yeah. I ended up learning once my friends are out. They're like, so we have no clue. Like, how are you doing this? Yeah. You know, now it's different though. Like information isn't the challenge now. I think the challenge is validating the information, right? Like yeah, who are you getting right. your information from? Can you trust it? Is it good? Yeah, that's it. So it's all discernment now, but uh, the days of, of, of having a barrier in front of that information, that, that's gone. Yeah. Like you can get that with your phone in two seconds. Well, and we'll get to it because it's a lot of the work that you do now, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, so this idea of living like you're, like you're broke. Um, I, I had this time in my life when someone was like, what are you doing with your money? And I kind of had the same bug. I was like, I'm recklessly saving it. Right. Like I am, there is not much money in my, in my checking account right now. And I'm taking as much as I can and I'm putting it in other places and things like that. Um, you know, to our, you know, our sales leaders, they earn really high commissions, right? Like in some ways that's, it's professional athlete style earnings. And some people, I, I, you just see like people's money personality, right? Like some, it's not bad to have nice cars. It's not bad to live in a neighborhood where, you know, you're behind a gate and your wife is safe and that whatever, it's right. all good. Right. But I want to talk more about this philosophy because, um, a lot of times when you have an opportunity to earn well young, you don't understand that what you're earning. So say you earn six figures, which is, you know, around what you started earning when you started earning good money at whatever, six K less taxes or whatever, you don't realize that you're not actually getting 6,000. You're getting 6,000 plus 10% for the next 40 years. Right. right? So I, I might've told this on this story before, but shout out to Pat Hart. Um, I was a buddy and I was sitting in Boston with him and he was, we were joking about this night he got promoted and him and his buddies went out to a club and uh, they were having a great time, private table, bottle service, all this kind of stuff. And at the end of it, uh, I don't think it was intentional or whatever, but he was left with the bill. 
and it was very expensive. It was like, it was like what teachers made when I was a kid in a year is what got pushed to him. And he was laughing and he's like, yeah, it sucked, but I just paid the bill and it it cost me X amount. And I was, and I, I, I couldn't help myself. I was like, okay, it actually didn't cost you X amount. How old are you? And he's like, I'm 28. And I was like, all right, well, how'd you, and I just spit it into chat GPT. And I was like, how'd you take in this and invested it? And it paid you 8% for 40 years. How much did you actually spend? And we looked at the number and it's insane. It's like when you buy a house for a million dollars and then you look at the 30 year mortgage payment and you're like, okay, this house is 2.4 million. That's actually what it costs. Right. You know? So maybe talk to me about that idea of living broke so that it, it can benefit your future self, right? Well, it, it's interesting because I had a, a philosophy then, and it, it has changed over the years, because you, you, know, you gain wisdom through age. But there was something that Randy told me that I, I, it just stuck with me, which was the way people get wealthy is when they control lifestyle inflation, right? Lifestyle inflation is something drilled into me. And basically he gave the example of what we do as people is we make more money and then we spend more money. And we're actually getting rid of the opportunity we have to ultimately not work again, yeah. right? When he said the not work again, and me being in a field that maybe had a 10-year career, I, I was so scared about not being able to make money that I just went, okay, control lifestyle inflation and get money to work, right? I didn't really understand the significance of it until I got older, right? You're talking about things like compound interest and what's the true opportunity cost from, you know, maybe spending on this versus investing. That's one thing. But what we see more than anything now with my career, uh, we have, I don't know, 550 investors. A lot of our investors are in sales, right? And there's a blessing that you have as a successful sales, in your case salesman, is you have a confidence in yourself that you can go out and earn and you're willing to risk the comfort or the stability of, you know, a high base for the opportunity that you can outperform and make a lot of money, right? If you know how to, if you're willing to eat what you kill, the upside is through the roof, right? The challenge is what I explained earlier. It, it takes very little for you to start making money and spend money. And then as people get older, what they start to, to feel exhaustion around is I have to now do all of this just to maintain my life. I can't yeah. even take my foot off the gas, yeah. right? And so what I'm seeing now is when you're young, that's your opportunity to step on it. That's not your opportunity to actually take over market share to make a ton of money. But if you're not planning for what's gonna come in 10 years, 20 years, I'm telling you right now, you're gonna burn out. And if you're gonna burn out, what's the point? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, such a great thought. Um, one of the things that I've, I've constantly kind of said is um, frustration slash burnout is often the result of enjoying the perks before you've done the work. Right. So if you think about it, it's like, say you get, say you get, say you get your hands on $100,000, right? Uh, you could go celebrate and you could buy something that's really fun. Right. But you're enjoying the perks now. Right. So, or you could do something that's not as fun and you could invest that. Right. And then you come back to it. You've done the work, then you enjoy the perks. Right. But I I see it all the way down to time off. Right. Like had you not maximized those years skating. Right. Like I think, you know, in, 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 in researching kind of your story, like, you understood that skateboarding was a way for you to get capital that you could invest so that you could create this life that you want. Right. right? But if you thought that skateboarding was a way for you to get money so you could party 
like you would have, you'd probably be in a very different spot right now. I 100% would be. Yeah. So, um, talk about that. Talk about your, your, your thought process maybe in, in maximizing your income as a way to fuel eventual lifestyle. Yeah. So there's going to be an element that's a little bit unique because I was a pro athlete, but I picked a career that was short lived and there wasn't a lot of money to be made in it. And on top of that, I wasn't aware of what my talents were outside of skateboarding. Cause right? that's all you'd done. It's all I'd done. So yeah. I was like, dude, how am I going to make money? Like I know how to, what did you think flip. you were going to do? I, well, get a job in the industry or something. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, I'm, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I didn't want to work in the industry. Okay. Um, I had this idea that I would just start my own company, but like I never made a step when I was young to even pursue that. Yeah. All I was trying to do was capture the opportunity in skateboarding. I okay. just want to make as much as I could skateboarding, create the biggest brand I could create and get as much money to work. That was like, that was it for me. It wasn't until I asked my wife's father for permission to marry her. I was going to ask my then girlfriend to marry me. I took her dad out to, to lunch I was like, I want to ask your, you know, I want to ask Jen to marry me, but I, I want your blessing. How old were you? I was 26 at this point. And so I'd been pro, what, six, seven years. And I was like, I want to ask her to marry me. And he goes, okay, cool. Like, what are you going to do after skateboarding? Like, how are you going to like take care of her? I remember he said that. I was like, holy crap. Like, how am I going to do that? He's, He's like, like, this can't be the first time you thought about it. <laughs> no, it was just interesting. Like he, yeah. he pressed me beyond that. Like I went like, oh yeah, I'll just start a company. Yeah. Right. And he was the first one. Okay. What type of company? Like he actually yeah. like, you know, pushed through the very first layer. And I went, I don't know. And he's like, well, I'll tell you what, like the, the, the person you are, I'm, I'm totally good with. Like you absolutely have my blessing to, to marry Jen. We'd be, we'd be, you know, we would love that but I want you to start thinking of a plan, right? And he said that, I was like, shoot, okay. And then, I don't know, it wasn't like four months later, my wife kind of said something similar, like, I want you to start thinking about what you actually want to do after skateboarding. Like, you don't have to figure it out today, but just start thinking about it. And I was like, okay, right? And then I was with a buddy of mine and we were shooting a, video, a film down in San Diego and we started talking about business business and skateboarding, right? And that conversation ultimately led to him saying, dude, like, what if we like did a brewery? Like, what if we started a, a beer and launched it in our world? And I think it was like a combination of like what my father-in-law said, what my wife said. I looked at him like, let's do this. You right? just tuned. You were tuned in. I was it. tuned yeah. in. Yeah. I had no business experience. He had no business experience. And it was like, just like the perfect storm of like the right people coming together a naiveness of not knowing how difficult it was and the pressure of having to figure out what I was going to do. And we just basically went for it. Then from that point, I started learning that I actually have a skill and talent beyond skateboarding. But up until that point, I didn't know what it was. How did skateboarding do you think help you in business? Like what, what like things that you maybe learned unknowingly, like I've heard you talk about like seeing the world differently. I know what that's like, right? Right. Like I didn't grow up uh, skateboarding. I grew up rollerblading. Hey, peace rollerblading <laughs> in the nineties, but I was in it. Like I'm in skate videos and things like that. And still to this day that it's so fun. I don't know if you do this. I would imagine you do, but I have these stairs inside my home and then there's this landing and then there's a counter. And I always think 
I just like hop right across that. Like yeah. I just slide that. I still look at, I still look at handrails and I'm like, yeah, I would go to backslide on that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe talk about how I always say everything is like everything. Like what in skateboarding prepared you to be successful if you were to look at it in hindsight now? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would probably say there's two parts to it. One, like we were talking about delayed gratification. Yeah. What you learn through skateboarding is the ultimate delayed gratification because it's so difficult to do that most people don't make it past the first three months, right? For example, it took me probably a full year of skateboarding of me trying an ollie, which is basically the first trick you ever learn until I landed it. So it's a full year of failure and not accomplishing something to finally get to feel it one time, right? Well, and one step further, you didn't have a private facility with a semi-pro skateboarder that your parents are paying $30 an hour no. to teach you. We were figuring it out in the parking you're lot. You're figuring it out. And because you saw a magazine, you're like, how did he get up there? Right. Yeah. So the, the, the interesting part is that doesn't really ever go away. Like you, it is absolutely impossible to master skateboarding, right? And then you add the element of what we are doing. We're jumping down handrails or jumping off stairs, right? And when you mess up, it, it doesn't feel good. It's painful. And every time you try a trick where you don't land it, you're having to walk back up the stairs, which represent failure. Your body's going through complete exhaustion. It hurts. It, it is the closest thing to a an all out war that an individual can go through. And you really go to like the depths of like, is this gonna defeat me? And that's on a daily basis, right? And what I ultimately was taught is failure is going to be painful, but it's absolutely a necessity to get to success. It's just part of the process. And so that was freeing. It was like, I, I, there was not a, there was no sense of me that feared failure because it was now part, it was now wired in my brain that I have to fail if I ever want to do anything. That was important for me. Um, the second part was probably how you launched this conversation, which was, you know, feeling comfort in chaos, right? Like in, in business, it doesn't feel right the majority of the time. It, it, it's the most bipolar experience that you can go through. One day you get a win and you feel like you're on top of the world. The next morning you feel like the company's going out of business. And it does that 24 seven until you exit, right? And you've gotta, you've gotta have some type of resiliency built up to not panic in those scenarios, to actually get your entire team focused committed and moving forward during really tough times. I, I I would not have known how to do that without skateboarding. Never heard that before. The bipolarity of business. I know exactly oh, what insane. you're talking about. Oh, it's insane. But it's so true. Um, we did, uh, we did some stuff. Tony Hawk was our first guest on this show. Sick. And uh, we, we did this thing at the Tony Hawk foundation and uh, invited us to this dinner. And have you ever been to anything for the Tony Hawk Foundation? It is the most, well, it's your whole world. It's the most wild and eclectic group of people. Correct. Right? So at one point we're standing next to um, Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction and then David Spade and Fred Durst is like chatting up our marketing guy. Like it was just so random. But um, I had a chance to meet Rodney Mullen. I didn't grow up skateboarding, right? And in, our, in the 90s, it wasn't like peaceful between my kind and your kind, right? right. But I always respected Rodney. Like right. Rodney is just, he's just so different. And I had just watched the thing that he filmed at the barracks um, before he started doing Ted talks and it's the beautiful mind thing. And he talks about how it comes from falling down. Right. Right. And so what you just said, it, I, I, our guys, it's very similar. They do door to door sales. Yeah. They hear no all the time. 
con more more often than, I mean if it's a good day if they go out for six hours and hear twenty no's and one not even a no but not a no correct you know what I mean it's like an almost land and you go home and you're like I felt it today you didn't land it but you found the pocket you you know it exists right. you know and so the guys that do the very best are the ones that can not think of the outcome they just think of the input right and they say to themselves. Like they don't miss a trick and then freak out. You know, those types, right? Maybe you've been that type at some point in your life, but they, they, they're like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try this. And then you fall and you're like, well, yeah, I've never tried it before. And you try it again and you fall and you fall and you fall. And you start to think naturally through action sports by the end of the year, I want to be able to do this. And then subconsciously you're like, and I'm fine to fall down this 18 set until that happens. The very best business people that I know, the very best salespeople, they have no feeling about inputs they don't like knock a door, get a no, and then react. Right. It's, they, it's almost like just no reaction. It's just nothing. Right. And then they just keep going. And then if they get one, that's good. And if they don't, then okay. And then they just keep going. And eventually at the end of a certain amount of time, they have some. A hundred percent. Yeah. It was interesting. I got invited this a while ago. I got invited to speak at Paychex, like their main headquarters mm -hmm. one day to their sales team. And you know, I get introduced as a pro skateboarder and you know entrepreneur. And I remember seeing everybody's face. Like they didn't say this, but in their facial expression, it was, why is a skater here talking to us, yeah. right? And then I go down the example that you just spoke of, like the the amount of time it takes a skateboarder to learn. And then once you become pro, that doesn't go away. You still have to put so much time into the process until you land something. And then I kind of you know did exactly what you just said. It's the same thing with sales. If if you are gonna stop and feel insecure because you hear a no, you're in the wrong field, right? But if you start to understand that you have to get to 30 no's before you get to a yes, you actually don't care about the no's. You're just, oh, okay, I gotta do 30 and then I get to one, so how can I do 60? How can I get to, it? and all of a sudden you actually look forward to the no's because you know you're one you know, call or one knock away from a yes. Changes everything when that becomes your outlook but you've got to be trained in it. It's not easy, but you, for me, that, that entirely came from skateboarding. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's so interesting. The other thing that I think is, is unique is you set these goals for, you wouldn't call it this when you're a kid, but you set these goals of what you want to do. Now, why do you want to do it? Like you said yourself, you never wanted to be a pro. I never was one. So when I, when I wanted to do something, it's just because I wanted to, I wouldn't make money right. if I did it. I might get some respect from my friends. I'm certainly not going to like get girls from doing it. Like, why do you want to be able to land that? And the answer would have been back then. Like, Oh, I just think I can do it. Right. right. I find that constantly now in setting goals for myself. Like, why do you want that goal? Well, cause I think that's a virtuous pursuit for some reason. Right. Mm. Like, mm. and I think there's a lot of places where like, think about it. Like, why do you want to win a basketball game? Oh, well, like, because the rules and then like they're, they're all going to cheer for me, but skating, you're mostly alone or with one other guy who's going to love you whether you do it or not. Right. Right. And so the ability to set a goal of something that you want to do alone without any kind of like financial um, reward and pursue it, there's a unique like resilience and, and um, kind of like self drive. Like, so I think about maybe the way you see the world in starting this brewery, there's tons of breweries in San Diego, right? Right, And you with no experience have the audacity to maybe think you can try or at least not be scared to try, right? Right, But I think that skill of being like, I think we could do it. Why wouldn't we be able to do it? Let's, let's do it, let's try it. I think that comes from that. 
right? The ability to set a goal because you want to do it and think you can do it, you know? Yeah. I actually think about that all the time because after we sold St. Archer, I remember talking to Paul about this. I was like, knowing what we know now, would you have done it back then? And oh, was we, he a partner with you? Yeah, it was that. me, Paul and Josh. Uh-huh. And knowing what I know, I probably would have said no. Like, no way. Like, yeah. there's no way I yeah. would have done that knowing what I know now because it was insane, right? Yeah. Uh, I'll probably say the same thing about Commune. Like, knowing what I know now about private equity and managing funds, I had no clue what I was getting myself into when I started this company. The complexity of it, the difficulty of it, I probably would have picked something else, mm. right? I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad I did yeah. it. But I, I think there's... I think that's one of the gifts of entrepreneurs is the naiveness mm -hmm. and willingness to just go do it. But there is an element of naiveness that I think sure. puts us in a position to succeed. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Because then you're just underwriting the process. If you actually know what it takes, you're going, okay, what's the upside? How much time and energy am I sacrificing? Can I even hit that goal? And I think you freeze yourself out of ever moving forward. Have you seen Ryan's new video party just put out? I did. Yeah. Kind of insane. Super uh, especially because I've seen him through all like his injuries and stuff. Right. But that uh, I watched a piece on that last trick that like kickflip off the Encinitas yeah. thing. That's one of those places too. Like I've never stood there, but I'd imagine if I could stand on top of it, I'd be like this. I mean, you know, when you go to the spot, it adds like such a crazy element to what was done there. Yep. Um, but that's probably the closest thing that I've seen. Like if you knew you were going to roll down this thing as a mid 30 year old over and over into traffic and down the steep thing, would you keep doing it? But once you start, it's like, well now. So that was for anybody who doesn't know, uh, <laughs> he went back what eight times to do yeah. this over years, right? Like he it, had injuries healed, went yeah, back that yeah. in skateboarding. That is the hardest thing to do. It's probably not just skateboarding. I think it's with anything. When you start trying something and then you, you become so like singular focused on the achievement. You're kind of in the zone. You're going to in the flow and you're either going to land it or you're going to get hurt. That's basically what happens, right? Once you remove yourself from that situation, having not landed it, it's very difficult to get yourself back into that mindset again 100%. in the future. That, yeah. that is by far the hardest thing yeah. to do. Uh, I think that's why that was so incredible that he ended up doing it is yeah. he had to put himself back in that scenario yeah. over and over and over. Yeah. yeah. It's like when you're already, you're, when your clothes are already torn and the adrenaline's already coursing through your body and you're already banged up and you've been, and it's seven o'clock about to get dark and then you don't, and then you go home and then you take a shower and, and then getting back, it's like, <sighs> right. Brutal. Brutal. Um, did you, when you started getting into more like commune, cause that's starting a business with your buddies that you know and are comfortable with, it probably feels like, okay, worst case scenario, if this doesn't work, we don't make money. We got to go make more money. We lost some cash. Once you get into to commune and real estate investing, and I want to talk about that business. Um, how'd you deal with like imposter syndrome? Did, I mean, you must've felt like I am, these people are really smart. I'm in over my head. I think they're all worth more than me. I'm presenting this to them. They're going to know I'm full of it. Right. Yes. I had that hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Like, do you still have it? Not anymore. Really? No, it, but it took, now you realize no one else knows what they're doing. So you're good. Yeah. It, it took me, look, it took me a while to like, just feel comfortable in a brand new space, you know? And I think the space that it was right. Like it, it, till I really go into, into specifics, Going from being a pro skateboarder to like a homie startup in the beer industry, 
actually didn't feel that far off. It was like, oh, we're just figuring this out and it's all good, right? Moving into dealing with very sophisticated people, right? People that are worth a lot of money. Uh, That was foreign for me. And, you know, I remember one time I walked into this meeting, everybody's in suits, bankers, and I mean, very experienced, educated, and successful people, right? And I walk in like a, like I look like a skater when I walked in, right? And I remember I walked in, I'm the president of the firm, I'm the founder of the firm. Uh, I have my team with me who's, you know, maybe more in line with who they were. And one of them goes, oh, are you the assistant? It was like the the most like gut punching like hit, right? And I remember going, no, I'm not the assistant, but like I, I was not, I wasn't confident in myself to actually like own the room in that moment when it happened, right? I remember just sitting down and we were having a meeting for maybe like 20 minutes and I'm like still thinking about it. Like how, what do I do here? Like how do I, right? And I remember like somebody said something about one of the apartments we were doing. Right. And we had a very uh, creative strategy on, on new apartments we were finding. We were basically like chasing the creatives. Right. We were finding the artists and the skaters because they're usually the first ones in and then they end up making a community cool. That's interesting. And I remember like the, the guys in the meeting that we were talking to, uh, they kind of like pressed us like, why would you ever invest here? And I just, where fit. was it out of curiosity? It was in Long Beach, actually. Okay. Yeah. It was on uh, Fifth Street. Like a place like getting gentrified at the time or what? Like, yeah, f- like at that time, basically, f- like from the beach to Fourth Street was really hip. Fifth, okay. sixth were kind of happening, and anything past seventh, like no one touched, uh-huh. right? And I remember them going, like, why, why would you ever invest here? Like, this is, the, the, this is not a good location, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember I was just like, oh, here we go. And I went in on this whole philosophy, right? This is why we do it. And this is what we're chasing. And I remember the look in their face. It was like, uh, they had a realization like, holy shit, what did we just experience? The meeting ended and they both came up to me like, dude, we are so sorry for saying you're, you're with the assistant. Like what you just communicated, we have never heard out of all the meetings we had on how you built out a strategy. And I remember leaving that meeting like, man, maybe like I am better at this than I think. And then I got to a point where I started feeling really comfortable with myself and I stopped trying to fit in into their world and started trying to pull their world into mine. Mm. Uh, and then that, that the syndrome went away, you know, that kind of comes back to even like, I mean, we talked about some design things before, but you know, Steve jobs always says design is not how something looks. It's how something works. Right. Right. And so that's it. Right. Like I, I think, and again, being able to look at the world, most people see a handrail, you see a, wow, I think I could, I think I could kickflip onto that and like Smith grind it or whatever. Like, right. and so I think, uh, it's quite, even when you said that to me, I was like, well, yeah, that is who would find those places. Like those guys were in lofts before lofts were cool. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. that's really interesting, but I think the world needs it because how many people have sat at their table and told them the exact same thing? How many, right? And we still are going to have new breakthrough ideas versus like the next level. We were talking about Elon Musk as I'm reading his book and you read his last one. Right. But there's a guy that's not like looking at, okay, traditionally, what have auto manufacturers done and what can we improve upon? Right. He almost doesn't want to see that book. He's like, no, cars are lame. Let's okay. let's do it different. Okay, so you're, you're, you're right. Like, I'm not saying this to say you're not. You're right. But one thing that took me a while to realize, and I don't hear it communicated that often, is 
when you look at an industry, whether it was beer, commercial real estate, you look for an opportunity to do something different, right? That's where the ultimate opportunity is. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people don't talk about is once you start doing it, the scrutiny and the opinions on how you're doing it wrong come out very heavy, right? Yeah, I'm sure. And that is the window that I think in commercial real estate took me a little bit longer to get comfortable with because I think it all went back to those original concerns I had as a kid. I'm not going to college. I'm finding an alternative path to get here. I'm, I'm, I've learned through experience, right? Uh, I, I think that all boiled together and was like the ultimate learning lesson for me to go, you know what? I actually know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm now more confident when I launch new things, but I'm also expecting that I'm gonna get extreme blowback. And it no longer, I think, digs at my insecurity or I no longer question if I'm what I'm doing is right. I just know that if I'm doing anything that's gonna change, yeah, it's gonna be met with adversity, right? Uh, an example of that, like when, when, when we started the company, I remember we designed our website and it looked more like a, like a, you know, fashion magazine in yeah, like LA. Yeah, I remember LA. seeing your early designs and I was like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. You know? And I remember people going, dude, this looks like, like a, like a, like a Los Angeles brand. Like mm-hmm. this doesn't look like real estate. Like, why are you doing it this way? No one's going to know what you're doing. No one's going to, and I'm going, shit, am I doing this wrong? Does wow. it need to look like everybody else, yeah, right? Yeah. But there's something about somebody going, what is this? Yeah. Right. If you would have looked at my platform and it just looked like Fundrise or CrowdStreet, oh, He's doing real estate, yeah, right? But the opportunity of somebody to go, what the heck is this? Mm-hmm. Creates an opportunity for them to look further. Yeah. And then they have the, oh, now they're gonna remember what this is once they figure it out, right? Like when I was skating, all of us used to talk about how you pronounce S. Is it ES or S, yeah. which is the shoes, right? Yeah. yeah. That was, I don't even think they did that on purpose. Genius. Yeah. Because now all we're doing is talking about the right way to say it. Yeah. And you remember it. And remembrance and attention is everything. You know, the one I think of when you say that is the, um, I've heard it said deos, do sex, machina, like just motorcycle lifestyle brand shop in, I think they have a shop in Long Beach, don't they? I don't know if they do or not. Anyway, done stuff. It's so awesome. But yeah, no one's, every time I say it, I'm like, I'm not a hundred percent sure on how to say it. And I've had their stuff forever. Right, you know? is it Givenchy? Is it Givenchy? What yeah, that's yeah. right. How do you say it? Yeah. Um, I also, though, as you were saying that, I was thinking back to, well, what's it like to describe to your parents as a 19-year-old with conservative parents that I'm going to be a pro skater? It's like, you have to have that ability to communicate stuff that is foreign to other people, right? Yeah, well, that that's, that's what I learned, that I had a talent that I wasn't even realizing I was using in skateboarding yeah. that actually could be applied, right? Super like, cool. I, I remember like being young going, well, I, I feel like an ability to get people like behind me. Like I've never had a hard time like wanting to do something and then get everybody rallied behind that. I just never understood what that meant. Which dude, that skill, I mean, there's the, the, the financial opportunity for people that can persuade and create buy-in. Right. I mean, I mean, you see it now. I'm right, right, just right. excited about it. But like in what you do, that's the thing, right? Like it is, but there are probably other people that could find properties, but the thing is getting people on, you know? Right. Well, I mean, you think about it, you got to do that if you're ever going to start a business, yeah. right? Like I had to do it when I tried to convince my parents to, you know, <laughs> have their blessing and going to be a pro skateboarder. Uh, but, but there's, look, there, it's a gift. That it, 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 there's a danger that comes along with that, right? Like when, 
when I realized I had an ability to, let's call it influence people or like convince people that I've got something that they want to get behind, uh, you can you can end up leading people off a cliff at the same time. 100%. Right? So it's yeah. like, if you have that talent and you're, you're kind of in a form of, in a position of leadership, uh, you gotta, you gotta be pretty responsible with it. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, we were talking about Walter Isaacson's books and he wrote the Steve Jobs book. And one of the things that he's like coined about Steve Jobs was he had this reality distortion field and it's like, he was such a visionary guy and believed it so heavily, but it's like some of this stuff is crazy, but you're so bought in. And in his mind, yeah, I've got 10 ideas. And if two of them work, they're going to be massive. But to the people that are following you, yeah, I, I, I've actually never thought about that, but you do have to be careful. There are people in our industry that have that, they're just, they're a magnet, right? Just a magnet. But that does come with it a pretty heavy responsibility because people move their families across the country and and they they invest their time, energy, and effort, and they they forego other opportunities to pursue the one that you implanted in them. Right. And if you lead them astray, that's heavy. And I know people that take that seriously, and I know people that I think should take it more seriously. One hundred percent. Yeah. There's a lot of people that should take it more seriously. Yeah. Well, and it's like the, my respect for them. It's like I look at their decisions, and I'm like, maybe you're just on these excited brain chemicals right now, but do they understand the risk right. that they're taking? I was thinking about this the other day. Um, have you seen Inception, the movie Inception? Yeah. Wonderful movie. Yeah, it's been a while, Leo. Yeah. It holds up. I just checked it out on an airplane like a couple months ago and it's better than you remember it. But I remember the part where they're, um, they first get into like the last simulation, right? And um, the, what, I can't remember her name, Ellen Page's character realizes that they're, they're, they're in the subconscious and that there's some information that all the teammates don't have. And she's talks to him and she's like, you need to tell him or I'm going to tell him because they have no idea the risk they've taken coming down here with you. And so I look at that and it's like maybe a healthy dose. Like that's a tough balance between like right. the vision and the the buy-in that it takes to make something work because it's so hard. And then the responsibility being taken seriously enough, but it can't stop you. Like you can't hesitate when you're, when you're, when you're pushing towards that 18 set because right. you're going to get really hurt if you hesitate. Right. But That's at the right. same time, you need the belief, but at the same time, you it's know what balance. I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely a balance, yeah. right? Like, especially knowing that most people don't like change. Most most people are pushed by, you know, the path towards comfort, right? And starting a business is not that. And so a lot of times, like, you know, as the leader, you're walking this line of like, okay, this would scare most people out of it if I just told everybody at face value, yeah. this is the situation, right? But then you also know that if you're willing to get through it, you get to experience something that most people don't get to experience, yeah. which is an exit or whatever yeah. the, you know your, your metric is. And so you're trying to walk that balance behind like, how do I, I'm going to say convince, because I don't know any other way to say it. How do I convince people to move through a, a situation that's scary, but that we can absolutely get through Yeah. versus there's no way to get through it. But how am I, I'm just so confident I can do it yeah. that now I'm pushing people in a scenario that we shouldn't like, yeah. that's the balance that you're trying to walk through. That's you the know? balance. Yeah. And I think when you were just speaking, like, and I think you do a pretty good job at like a level of authenticity that people try. Like, I mean, you are yourself, you were yourself as a skateboarder, as a, you know, as a, in, in the other industry and now in this one. But I think that's maybe the, the North star is if you had an investment that was actually really risky, and you called me and you said, Hey, this one is not for everyone. It is a really high upside. There's significant risk. Let me know if you want to hear it. 
I'd be like, well, yeah, what you got? Yeah. And, but some people would be like, no, thank you. Right. You could then show me. I mean, I remember when I first started doing single family homes, my friend Sterling uh, said to me, I was like, well, what's that like? Like, is it a pain? Like managing all these single family homes. And he said to me, he's like, it's a bunch of base hits. Like it's nothing exciting. You're going to get three to 600 bucks a month cash flow. That's it. Hopefully eventually it's worth something, but you're not going to lose. Right. And so I was like, all right, I'm in, I did it. Right. But I think if he would have said, it's the best thing ever picture this 20 years from now, you're sitting back and it's just, I would have been like, that wouldn't have helped me. I think the best thing to do is present the opportunity as it is. Right. And you're going to attract the right people to right. it. Right. But if you, if you present it as it's not, and you attract the wrong people into it. Yeah. Your life is hell. Yeah. Right? That's, that, yeah. That's something that we talk about a lot now because you, a bad investor can ruin a good deal. And so like, us as a company, like we spend a good amount of time making sure that the investor is actually a good fit. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that can be a bad day. Uh, and then even you just saying that just reminded me of our original pitch with St. Archer, which was don't give us anything that you're not totally comfortable losing. I love it. Same thing to my dad. I, you yeah. Know, we're pitching family. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm pitching my dad, my uncle, my now father-in-law. It's like, I've got to see these people at every family event. Right. So I remember just saying, just give me what you can lose. If you want to like get behind me, great. Just make it an amount that like, if I see you and it's gone, we're all good. Yeah. But think you about, know? think about like the trips that you've been on that are like great memories. It's almost like, Hey, we're going. Yeah. Come or don't. It's going to be wild. 100%. We're going. Then it's like. I actually think you probably did it subconsciously, but that's the best sales pitch ever. You know, it's your, your deal. Like your company is not for everybody. Not every deal is for everybody, but for those who it is for. Yeah. But you really, for, you, you, know? you learn that in time, right? Like when, when you're just starting something, you're so eager to get going yeah. that you feel like, okay, I just have to say yes to everyone. Yeah. And uh, that is a tough spot to be in, yeah. right? It's like, you're not making any money. You're, you know, putting all your time and energy into it, which if you have a family, it means your family's, you know, sacrificing or you're making a sacrifice because of it. And you just want to get going, yeah. right? As you get bigger, you actually become more confident and understand that like bad investors are actually bad for you. Yeah. And when you start saying no, it ends up resulting in more people saying yes. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure if like you could fake that from the beginning if that's just the normal evolution of it i don't know it's hard man because now you look at it and you're like that's how i would raise my money but back then i get it like same thing with sales like it's 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 one of those things where people they call it commission breath right like they can smell the desperation on you mm -hmm. but it's like the best sales people are the ones that come through and they're like listen so they don't say this but the vibe you get is i'm all right if you do this or not I'm good. Like one of the things that I'll constantly tell people like the mindset in a neighborhood is, is if I come to your door, which I'm going to tell that story in a minute, cause you weren't a part of it. Um, if I come to your door and I tap your door and I'm like, Mikey, I got to tell you, this is, you need it. This is awesome. It's going to change your life. Wouldn't you rather you're like, bruh, bruh, bruh. for some reason, my body is pushing away from you. This right. is a lot. But if you get the vibe of like, listen, I do. All right. Pretty much everybody I talk to does this. I'm going to do it for somebody. I saw you were home and you're a hard guy to catch. Let me run this by you real quick. If you don't do it, that's fine. If you do, I mean, I'd rather you do because I'm here, but if you don't, that's okay. I'll do it for your next door neighbor. Right. It's a bit like, all right, what you got? Right. It's just, it's so much more. But when you start and you don't have the commission, you, you're not safe. Yeah. You're thirsty. How do you pretend? Off. Yeah. Like yep. that's a right. tough one. It is a right? tough one. I think that's where you just have to hustle. Hopefully you have some principles and you hustle and you get through it. But once you get through it, pervade calm. Like as long as you can like get that out there and you're confident and you're constantly getting better, 
it all starts to people can tell. Yeah. Like people can tell if you're the real deal. They can tell if you've done the work. Right. You know, that's right. So back to knocking your neighborhood. Okay. I told you this briefly at the golf tournament, but so I was relatively, I'd, I'd had 10, 11 years of experience in high commission door to door sales. So I'd done it for a long time, but solar was really new to me. Um, and so generally you put a little bit of distance between where you live and where you work, not necessarily cause you're going to see somebody I actually I do solar for all my friends and I think it's great. You probably take your friend's money and stuff like that. Right. Uh, invest your friend's money. No, I do. Yeah. yeah, I totally do. Um, but now I generally put some distance between me and the hood because I like to take a second and listen to my books and get in the zone and decompress before I get into my house. But I didn't know that lesson. And so uh, your home that you were living at is right at the bottom of the hill from my, we lived maybe a half mile away from each other. Right. And so I was just in there working. I was just knocking doors. And, uh, I, I knocked your door and I was talking to your wife. I think she was pregnant at the time and had a couple like. If it was 2013. Or 14. It was 14. She was pregnant with our second. Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. a whole. Think about how much your family is. Mine too. I had three. I have six now. Right. Um, so I knocked her door. She, uh, well, maybe she wasn't pregnant. Maybe, girls were drinking wine. Maybe she wasn't. Anyway, uh, but there was all these girls from the neighborhood and they're about my age, right? I'm 41 years old. So it's like, I knock the door, door, door salesman, holding my clipboard, wearing my polo. There's this like gaggle of women in the house. And then someone about my age opens the door and I'm, and I'm used to this. So I start talking to them and I was like, okay, well, let me, let me uh, kind of explain you how this works. She's like, well, my husband's not home, which I'm really used to. Right. And they're never home. It's North Los Angeles area, like takes forever to get home. And so I was like, all right, well, let me, let me just get the bill and then I'll come back for you. And one of the neighbors, the one across the street was like, Hey, we're doing a remodel, but after like, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you too. So I kind of had these, like these females that I was trying to constantly get in touch with. So she gave me your electric bill. You guys didn't use a whole lot of power. You're pretty responsible people. Right. right? I think I remember you were driving a Prius at the time. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And so anyway, it was just, it was in my neighborhood, but my job is to pursue clients. And it's, it's something that's very easy for me to take information and remember it. Like right. I remember that car and I remember, well, it's just funny. Cause everything you're saying, like, I know the exact people yeah. that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> me too. Yeah. But I know them in a very different way. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, it was funny because it kind of didn't work out, but I, you know, it was just timing and whatever. And I ended up switching neighborhoods and my job changed and all that kind of stuff. But then, um, I remember when she told me, she's like, well, my husband's not around a lot. He travels. And I was like, okay, well, what does he do for work? And she's like, he's a pro skateboarder. And I was like, well, who is it? And she's like, it's Mikey Taylor. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I know who that is, whatever. And so, um, then we were at a golf tournament like years later and I was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember this, but I was like, Hey, I actually like randomly, I know your wife. Well, I don't really know your wife, but I've come to your house and I was trying to catch you. You drive the Prius, right? And you're electric. And you're like, bro, how do you know all this stuff about me? And I'm like, it's actually my job. It makes me good at it. I know it's coming at you kind of weird right now, but it's funny how things work out, but it's, it's just one of those things that I know what it's like to be like, okay, this is my community, right? Like this is my like area. Like I'm going to run into these people at subway and at the grocery store and to try to be getting something rolling. Right. right. But it's just funny to go back. I mean, that would have been eight years ago, nine years ago. And like crazy, just right? everything that's happened since then. I know. It's wild. It's wild that we're even in a conversation, it's, but that's how the world works. You I know. know it is wild. Crazy. I know. I never experienced door knocking until I, I ran for city council last year. I was going to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to, why had would to, anybody run for city council, Mikey? I know. You know, I don't, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it was interesting. Like I remember basically realizing that I had to go door knock something I had never done before. Something that is not comfortable to do. 
And you I should had, have texted me. We would have deployed an army for oh you. Oh my gosh, man. if I would have known you, I would have at done the, it. At, at your beck and call, we'll I would have, have 30 people it. coming through there. I would have done it. Um, and it's in my neighborhood. Yeah. It's like people that I yeah. actually like do life with. And I yeah. remember right when I started, I was in this neighborhood. I knocked on this door. They didn't answer. I walked out. Some guy drove by, stopped, reversed. He's like, Mikey? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And he goes, what are you doing? He followed. I didn't know him. He followed me on social media. Uh-huh. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm running for city council. And he goes, are you door knocking? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm door knocking. Yeah. And it was so funny. His first response, like, why are you door knocking, bro? Like that's, that's beneath you almost. Yeah. It was kind yeah. of like the vibe. Yeah. I remember going, well, I know what it takes to win and what it takes is starting out at the freaking ground floor. And that's what it felt like it was. It was yeah. just like, I gotta, I gotta go for this. But it was, that was not, that was very unnatural for me in the beginning. By the end, as a rock star. Yeah. Now, now, hey, how are you? This is me, but oh, you know what? Okay, later, next yeah. one, you know? Yeah. It's one of those things where it's interesting because you started talking about how most people would never try certain entrepreneurial ventures, right? It's funny because when people talk about door knocking, there are a lot of times like, people still do that. That's always the thing that they say. The next thing they say is, I would never buy from a door-to-door guy. And you're like, well, yeah, I wouldn't buy from a door. That's not what we do. We, we, we introduce ourselves. We let you know who we're working with in the community. We make you aware of an issue and we fix it for you real quick. Right. You, you don't, it's never a, like it's someday, a funnel. It's yeah, a funnel. like you'll have people that invest in your um, business, your real estate and storage unit business from this. And it's, it's not like you sold them. It's like, no, it's not a good opportunity. And then, and then they did it. Right. But I definitely know what that's like. I definitely know what it's like to be like, are you not, I've, I've knocked into my friends before and they're like, Ty, yeah. I'm like, that's <laughs> totally. what I do for a living. Yeah. But here's the thing. When I got myself, and initially I wasn't comfortable with it, but once I got myself to the point where I was, when you no longer, back to skateboarding, you no longer fear the failure, right. you realize your worst fears aren't going to happen. Right. Nothing bad's going to happen. But if you can get comfortable and just put in the reps, you underestimate what good can happen. 100%. You know? 100%. That's well said. Um, why real estate? After, after St. Archer's, what, what, what got you started in real estate? And maybe talk about the idea technically to go to apartments rather than single family homes. Our guys get hit up on investments constantly. Right. And I'm always protective of what they do. That's good. So talk to me about your philosophy on that. Okay. So I started investing in storage before that. I started that before I started business. Um, I started investing because Randy, his brother ran a storage portfolio. Randy's like, Hey dude. So, you know, you make enough now and we have enough available where you can, you know, start investing in some of these private offerings. I was like, okay. Like I didn't know real estate at all. Mm. The thing though, that I always liked about real estate was the tangible aspect of it. Yeah. But that just made me comfortable go, okay, I'll invest a little bit. It wasn't 25,000. I think was my first investment. And even though I was invested in the stock market, even though I had stocks or bonds that, you know, were paying me actual dividend, there was something about receiving a check for cash flow that was freeing for me. I don't know why it had yeah. to come from real estate, but when I got my first quarterly dividend, they paid out quarterly back then, got my first one, got my second one, got my third one. By the fourth one, I was like, this is my way out. Yeah. Right. And so from there, I kind of had a moment where I shifted into instead of getting everything into retirement funds and the stock market, let's get it into storage. Uh, then I started my business. And when we sold our business, I mean, that was the m- most money I'd ever seen. I mean, like I, I paid more in taxes than I probably made as a 14 year pro skateboarder collectively, right? Blessing and a curse, right? Blessing and a curse. 
And with that, I was like, okay, now I can actually start taking heavier positions in what I'm doing. So I, I went pretty aggressive in storage. And it took me about a year to figure out what I wanted to do after St. Archer. Um, how that panned out, one of my partners wanted to stay in beverage. So he started another uh, brand that ended up becoming a you know bunch of uh, brands inside of the alcohol space. Paul Rodriguez, who was my other partner, is still a pro skateboarder because he's like Kelly Slater or Tiger Woods. He's the best. And then he started a company called Primitive, which is a massive clothing brand. And I was... I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I was struggling with it. Um, it probably took me a full year of like kind of finding myself post St. Archer and post skateboarding. Were you dealing with like, um, not just decisions, but probably some like identity was, issues at that I point, was, right? I was dealing with a slew of things. I was dealing with a broken marriage. I was dealing with a severely severed relationship with my kids. I was dealing with identity. I was dealing with purpose. I was dealing with all of the things that I never wanted to experience all at once. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can't start a company in there. Like in that you're in survival mode at that point. And so I was trying to, to figure out how to rebuild my marriage with my wife. And at the same time, trying to find myself, which, you know, in, in my perspective, you can't be a good husband if you can't be a good leader. And if you don't know who you are, or why you're here, I, I think it's impossible to be that. And so I started, you know, to like really go in on specifics, my wife and I started going to like, we went to a marriage retreat and we started going to counseling. And at that point I was starting to wake up early and I, I don't know why I thought this. Oh, I know why now, but I had this thought when I was going through it of like, I've never read the Bible before. Like I should just read the Bible. Right. And so that became my morning routine for a year. I'd wake up at five, I'd read the Bible for 30 minutes, I'd do like a little workout, and then I would go out kind of throughout my day, right? What I didn't realize was happening until about six months in that simultaneously my marriage was getting better, my relationship with my kids was getting better, I was starting to feel more confident myself. And once I got to the point, which was about a year where I was like, dang, things are kind of like back on track. Uh, that's when I was in the position to find out what was next, at least career-wise. And there was something that I was wrestling with on what the next idea was, which was I loved investing. Like I really liked getting money to work, but I also really liked business, right? Like I, I, I enjoyed having an idea and figuring out how to get people in and build it when there's no revenue and then scale it, et cetera. And so I was like, you know what? What about like, combining the two together and building like a business that is investing. And so uh, that was kind of like the idea behind it, but I wanted there to be an education part, right? Like in that soul searching, I'm kind of going through in circles right now, in that soul searching of who am I? How do I fix my marriage? How do I fix my kids? I had no income coming in. That was a full 12 months, no income. And I didn't have to scramble for it. Like I, I had, you know, put myself in a position that was kind of ideal for that. And I started going back to the beginning to like really like walk through like how I had got here. And it all went back to Randy. It was like, if I never would have met him, I never would have one understood how to invest. I wouldn't have had the discipline. I wouldn't have started the company. I wouldn't be in the position I am today. And I wanted to replicate that for others. So I didn't just want to build a private equity firm. I really wanted there to be an education component 
so that if people wanted to learn, they had access to it and then they could go do whatever they want on top of that. If they wanna invest with us, great. If they wanna invest on their own, great. And so we launched it as a private equity firm with the purpose of educating kind of those around us. Dude, that's, um, it's really profound, man. I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing that about yeah. your family. I didn't, you know, I feel like most people, when you have success and you're, you're dynamic and goal driven and you have a family that young, I mean, that's, everybody knows that. Right. I think if they're being honest, you know, um, very hard to be an entrepreneur or they take a step back. It's very hard to be an obsessive personality that is extremely driven to have a successful marriage. If the goal isn't a successful marriage, right? 100%. And I, you know, I shared this on a podcast that I was doing once and I still think I believe it. Um, but they, you know, he was asking me what my why was like, what's your why? What's your why? And I was like, well, it's not my family, which sounds crazy, but it's like, listen, my family doesn't, my family doesn't care if I make $2 million or $1.4 million a right. year. Their life doesn't change much. It's important to me that I contribute and that I'm growing and developing. So I'll always take care of my family. That's like my life. Why? But it's not the reason I stay here for an extra hour. And I think I've, I've had times where I've gotten confused. I'm like, I'm doing all this for you. And it's like, really, really that magazine shoot. That was for me. You're like, no, nah, that's for me. <laughs> like, and so where, where I've kind of come to peace with it is my soul purpose in life is to help my family travel. That's my crew. And we're trying to get through this life together. And I've got to be a good leader. I like how you said that. It's hard to be a good husband if you're not a good leader. Mm. Right. So that's my sole purpose. Now, how I do that? Well, I work really hard and I'm going to be a good provider, but they don't care if I sell houses or sell solar and they don't care if I, what I do. Right. Right. So, so when I kind of found that thing where it's like, okay, it's just like, were you winning contests or creating a video part for Jen? Probably not. That's how you provided for your family, but you want to do good at what you're doing. Right. And I think, I think coming to that realization is really helpful, but then you get to a point where it's like, okay, now how do I do that? Right. How do I, how do I get to my, how do my kids know who their dad is that I'm here for them and perform at a high level? And that's, I love that. Like when you figured that out and you mentioned the Bible, it doesn't have to be the Bible, but it's wholesome, virtuous stuff, right? It could have been another book that you're reading that also did the same effect. But I love the idea that when you slowed down, looked inside, repaired, look at how you came out of that. Like right. starting St. Archer, you probably felt pretty successful, but that you probably look at yourself and you're like, man, I was a child compared to where I am now. Right. right? It just makes you like superhuman when you fix those cracks in the foundation, you know? Well, yeah, it does. But what's interesting. And if there's anybody out there like me, I, it's probably going to resonate when, when I was starting my career as a pro skateboarder, then the entirety of it, I thought my model to success was outwork everyone. Right? If you were willing to skate five days a week, I was skating seven. If you were gonna put out one video part, I was gonna put out three. And that did very well for me in the skate industry. So much so that when we started our first business, my outlook was, you know what? I skate so much more than everybody. I put out so much more content. If I cut that back by 50%, I can put 50% attention towards the business and I'm still skating as much as everybody else on the skate side, right? When we sold St. Archer and at this point, I'm no longer post skateboarder. Uh, and I've got my marriage back to a healthy place. I'm like, actually like the father, you know, for my children. And I came up with the next business idea. I was actually very fearful that 
if I didn't put the business first and didn't use what I thought my model to success was, which was outwork everybody, I'm going to fail at this business, right? And I remember going, okay, you know what? It is what it is. Like, I'm not willing to lose the family, so I've got to figure out a way to build the business with the family. I was not comfortable doing that. What I didn't realize, though, is it forced, one, me to have a higher value of my time, and two, it really pushed delegation. It was, we're going to build a machine that ultimately can work without me, and then even in the decision-making, I was including my wife in that. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to risk our entire net worth in building something new. Is, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, these are the risks. This is the potential reward. Are you okay with this? Right? That was massive for us. And then the last thing, like I used to skate 24-7, right? I don't work on the weekends anymore. Saturdays and Sundays, non-negotiables for me. Like, right? Like that time is spent for my family. Uh, and then when I'm with my family, I try to give them my actual attention, right? They don't just get the body figure and my brain's thinking about a new deal. It's you have my attention. It's not perfect. There's times where I really struggle to do it, but that is at least the priority and, and the goal that I'm striding, striving towards. Back to uh, inputs. It, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? Like It never is. Yeah. Like I think there will come a time where your kids get to an age just like you did with your family where you're like, he was trying. And that means so much more than my dad was just really good at being fully present. Right. You know, I was thinking of this thing. Um, I have this problem being like patient. Like I'm, I'm when I get home, like there's six kids, you know, the, that like, you know, that like frequency, that noise frequency where you come in the house after like, just like a, like a mind melding day and you come in the house and you're like, is every person screaming? Right. right? <laughs> like, and so I, you know, I get short with people and I see my son starting to do that. Right. Same way. Same and, thing. And so I've had to tell him, I'm like, Hey, I'm working on being patient. I'm not very good at it, but don't watch me try to get right. better at it. And I don't want you to think that this is the way to be. This is something that's really hard for me. Like I'm trying right now to like be cool to everybody, but it is hard for me. Right. And, uh, I think that's more meaningful than like, no, nope, my dad was super patient all the time. Cause then the kids need to learn like, dude, I had to figure this out. And if you want to figure stuff out, like, or if you want to be successful, you've got to like figure it out too. Well, yeah, you know? I, yeah, hundred percent. I think the lesson that you're really teaching them is you don't succeed because you're just randomly good at something. You succeed because you're willing to put in the time to yeah. then become good at it, right? Yeah. Like that's you're willing that, to be bad at it first. Right. right? And it's interesting because I have to watch myself with that. Like, you know, my son or my daughters, like they'll do something and my natural reaction say, that was so good. Mm -hmm. Like you did that so well. Yeah. Right. And what we had to learn is like, that's actually pretty difficult to constantly tell a kid because what you really want to reward is the time and energy they put into it. Right. 100%. I could see how hard you worked on that. It's yeah. paying off. Yeah. Good work. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to do. Right. So I think that's actually a good example of like, you know, your example with your son, like, look, I have to work on this. And my goal is that I'm going to get better. And I hope that you get to see me get better because yeah. that's the ultimate testament yeah. in, you know, if this is of value to pursue, to pursue. I don't know if you ever do that with your wife, but like sometimes like my wife, my, my kids I have four boys and two girls and a couple of my kids have like this, like appetite for destruction that I understand. I was like alternative sports, loud, fast music. Sometimes you just need to you're out skating and you just want to see if you can pull that rail out of the ground. Right. And everyone's like, why are you doing that? But like some people are like, no, I like to see. And so my kids will do that. And my wife's like, I do not. And I'm like, 
that one's from me. I got it. It's a crate. And every now and then with the daughters, I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, listen, I've got this one. Like it's a crazy thing when you look at your kids and you're like, that one's from me. I got it. Let me help. Sorry. This is who you married. Like, let me try to like figure that one out. Um, How do our people that are looking for good places to invest their long-term income, how do they find you guys? How do they um, learn about what you do and how do they decide if it's for them? Um, If you want to find me, I'm on pretty much every platform, just my name, Mikey Taylor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our company is called Commune Capital. So you can go to communecapital.com or we're on every platform as well. Um, on there, you'll be able to either schedule a call with us. You'll be able to put your information to get access to at least like, you know, what the deals are that we're doing. Uh, and then if it's a fit, it's a fit. And then we move forward. If not all good, there's a lot of other opportunities out there that might fit your goals or your risk tolerance, et cetera. And you're primarily, um, multifamily real estate and storage units. Multifamily and storage are the two asset classes that we focus on. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. And, uh, the thing I love about like for you guys that are listening, go check it out, but even scrolling through your, your, it's that infotainment, right? Like it's, it's a minute you learn something. It's easy to watch. I was watching your thing today. Maybe give one quick plug before we close out on the side hustle. I like, I like the side hustle video. Yeah. Um, talk about that for a second. Uh, side hustles, side hustles could be dangerous. Uh, basically that's the point I was making was, uh, if you, have a job that you don't like, you can make the case that creating a side hustle is just the beginning steps of you moving into a different direction and different career. I'm totally fine with that. Like, I think from a risk adverse standpoint, that's fine. The challenge is, is if you have an opportunity that is your basically greatest source of income and you go create a side hustle, you're diluting your time into something else which is resulting in a net loss of what your true opportunity is. So you just have to kind of be careful that when you do too many things, you can't do one thing great. Uh, And so I'm a believer of go all in on something. You know, don't sacrifice your time away from what your greatest opportunity to make money is. Yeah. It's an interesting idea because a lot of people have very different advice right now. You know, you, you get like some of your, um, pop your Gary V's and stuff. And they're like, grind all the time. Like if you're not doing these other things, you're missing out. Um, but I was watching, there's a great documentary on HBO of Shaq. Have you seen this? It's like a four no, part. It's man. really good. It's, Shaq's so easy to watch because he's yeah. got such a good personality yeah. and stuff. And like growing up in the nineties and everything, like you just remember the Shaquille O'Neal thing. And, uh, he was constantly getting feedback like, Hey, stop trying to rap and stop trying to do movies and stop trying to do all these endorsement deals and just focus on basketball because basketball is going to pay you more. Right. He got the, at one time he got the biggest deal in industry history. Right. And, uh, when he went to the Lakers, he did that. Right. But before the magic, he was kind of dabbling in stuff. And it was funny because there was this interview and they said, Hey, a lot of people would say that you spend too much time on other things and that you're distracted. And that's the reason that, you know, you might not have a championship. What would you say to that? And he's like, man, he's like, all I'm trying to do is be young, have fun, drink Pepsi and wear Reebok. And <laughs> they're just like, so funny. Cause he's like, of course you do. You're like, check, check, check. Yeah. But, um, no, I love that advice because this is, this job is really hard. It's a hundred percent commission. But for me personally, this is my opportunity to earn. I can earn more money doing this than I could at starting a clothing brand or any other thing. Now, maybe that's not true, but it's a very high risk. Right. So I love the, um, I like the part of your story where you used your trade 
to fuel your investments. And then when you got to a point where you were, uh, where you could fund your lifestyle by your investments, you searched for the next chapter in your life. That's a very good way to do it. Right. Right. What I would hate to see is some of the guys that like throw their opportunity away. One example that I learned is for me right now in my job, it's so dynamic. It's so fast paced. It's so much work learning what you do in real estate is probably not a good investment for me. Right. Now it would be nice for me to be proficient and have people around me that can say, Hey, is this a good deal? Let me employ this money while I keep making it. Because Correct. right now I could probably earn more doing what I'm doing than doing what you're doing. Right. And you're here. So I can do both. Right. I can earn money and then give you guys money and then help me earn more money. Right. Now there may come a time when that changes, but I thought that was, that was really good advice for a lot of people. Yeah, we, we actually, like this happened to me yesterday, a pro athlete reach out and, you know, Hey, I, I want to invest in real estate. And I think the natural kind of view for us is, okay, I'll just go do it myself. Right. I'll learn it. I'll figure it out. I'll stay up late. Yep. And basically my advice to, to all of them is if you want to do real estate, right, that is going to be your career. You're going to do what I do. Yeah. Go do it yourself. Don't, don't bother doing it with me. Right. But if your goal is building out a portfolio where you're earning passive income or you're you know building your wealth through alternatives like real estate do not take your eye off the ball of your greatest earning potential right and i would say from our experience uh most people go okay cool but the ones that don't go no i'm gonna do both i end up hearing from him three four five years later shit i wish i wouldn't have done yeah. this running real estate is not as passive as everyone thinks it's yeah. a job yeah you know and so just be mindful of that yeah yeah. I thought about that. Like, again, the single family homes that I have, I, you know, initially I saw that and I was like, I'm going to pay a property manager how much? And you have that initial desire to be like, well, how hard could it be? Pay a property manager every single time. Well, and now it's every like, yeah, I don't think about it ever. And the hardest part was whenever I was doing anything myself, securing the loans and doing the things and having the deal vetted. Right. But now once it's done, yep. that's some of the best money I spent. I didn't even notice it. Yep. You know, one of the best piece of it, pieces of advice I got is that the goal is not to be a landlord. The goal is to be a real estate investor. Mm -hmm. They're two different things. Yeah. That was huge for me. Yeah. The world opened up when I understood that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Hey man, you drove down here, you spent an hour and a half with me and I'm stoked. Thanks thank for you. having me. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to really help our community. Hopefully it's helpful to yours, Heck but yeah. thank you for the work that you're doing and thanks for sharing with us. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me. If you're listening to this and interested in joining our teams, DM us on Instagram at run the league. What are you waiting for? Run the league, shoot us a DM and let's get going. Thank <laughs> you.